0: you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. If you're just joining, this week we're revisiting the first installment in our series, Exploring Chaplaincy. In this series, we follow seven chaplains in their daily rounds, from a trauma care center to a Buddhist retreat to a military base. In this hour, we explore the role of chaplains in a senior care facility. Before the break, We heard a chaplain who said, contrary to popular wisdom, we don't necessarily get more rigid or dogmatic as we age. Turns out, there's research to suggest the opposite is true. Ruth Martin takes it from here.
1: The director and founder of the George Washington Institute for Spirituality and Health, Dr. Christina Puhalski, looks at the role of spirituality at the end of life.
2: There's a sense that the structures that they grew up in, they can transcend that. They see a bigger view.
1: We invited Christina to the studio to hear more about this bigger view. And we were also joined by Carrie Egan, author of On Living. It's a memoir of her years working as a hospice chaplain.
2: Interestingly, in Belgium, um, there's a group that has been working on gyro-transcendence, and this is uh, uh, thought to be or is proposed to be the final stage of spiritual development. And it's a time when people draw in, but also have a more transcendent perspective. And they've actually done studies. They've developed a scale around zero transcendence and they did a study of older adults in a nursing home facility in Belgium and had them fill out these these scales, and then they've also asked the people who worked in the nursing home caring for them. And the very things that the older adults found helpful, be it going inward, being quiet, being more reflective, are things that the staff thought were more depression. And and I remember hearing the reading the results, also hearing the results of this uh, study and thinking about people in nursing homes who are being put into large groups to play bingo, when maybe what they really want to do is have some time to spend with their own self, their inner spirit, if they believe in God, their relationship with God. If they see something else transcendent that's meaningful to them or reflect on where they've been, where they are in their relationship, what matters most.
1: So when we hear Rabbi Sarah talk about walking up the mountain and how the higher up you get, the more expansive a view you have, Mm -hmm. is she describing uh, Jero transcendence I think
2: so. I think it's a beautiful image um, of being able to to see something um, in, in a very different way, knowing, I think, that your time is limited on Earth, but also it, it's a sense of how long we've lived on this planet, all of our life experiences. I will need to say from a medical perspective but that, that is something that's so important about caring for people in the biopsychosocial spiritual model, the mind-body-spirit. If people have very bad pain from their physical ailments, they sometimes can't actually work with a chaplain or can't can't go into that deeper realm in their life because they suffering so much from the physical pain. So once we can attend to those issues, I think we free up people to move inward and to get to those places of, if you want to say, the top of the mountain.
1: And Carrie, we use the metaphor there of religion as mm-hmm. a roadmap. Do you agree with that? I mean, is that a good metaphor? What metaphor would you use for religion at the end of
3: life? I do like that metaphor. I The metaphor I use is um, a spiritual toolbox, because I, I like that idea that we all have we all have a spiritual toolbox (laughs) some peoples have more tools than others and that's just the truth but we all have something we all have something we can use when we're facing those big questions of meaning what did all of this mean that we can pull out and help us make sense of it and religion is probably the biggest tool for most people in their toolbox it's not the only one but it's probably the biggest one and Um, what are some of the other tools besides religion uh, you know, one of the things that I have found people love more than anything else is music and poetry, the novels they've read. So art, really, even even for some people who are very visual pictures, they've seen um, art can be a huge, hugely important part of that spiritual toolbox to read a beautiful poem and to think about what does that mean to me? What does that say about my life? Do I agree or do I disagree? family and friends are really important for that. If someone doesn't sort of have those spiritual markers, hopefully, hopefully, they have um, a familial and social network that they can turn to, to think about these things, to make sense, to to think, well, this person went through that, and here's how they made sense of it, or here's how they coped with it. There's a lot of things that can be part of that spiritual toolbox. And, Christina, you wanted to add something.
2: Yeah, I, I think if we look at spirituality, broadly defined as meaning, purpose, and connectedness to the significant or sacred, however people understand it. You know, And I, I thought of a patient the other day where I asked a spiritual history, and he answered well, you know, I'm not really religious, but um, he but spirituality, and he paused and he says, "It's Bach, Beethoven, Mahler." Dvorak. Mm -hmm. And it was so beautiful in the sense of, of, you know, and I said, so tell me what that, tell me more about that, you know, and and then he could talk about his connection, what happens when he listens to music, how he goes to another plane. Mm -hmm. So I I think one of the things that struck me about this also was the the key for all of us, chaplains, but other people on the healthcare team too, is listening to the story. And what I love working with board certified chaplains with is that they are trained when they hear a story to ask questions that can help patients move people move in a different direction ways to help people reflect
1: and Carrie for somebody who might not have come across a hospice chaplain what does a
3: hospice chaplain do A chaplain is a member of the hospice team, and our job on that team is to help people with their spiritual lives. If there's any sort of big questions of of why is this happening, or if you just want someone to sit with and to pray with, someone just to talk to, we're here to meet you um, for whatever you might need at any given time. All right. And Christina, I want to ask you a little
1: bit about the medical side of things. Mm -hmm. I know from doing a little bit of research that there's a lot of discussion around how to... Present the role of chaplains in a way that's viable to people who make budgets, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. in the healthcare mm-hmm. sphere. So, what are some of the evidence based benefits of having chaplains around?
2: Well, your question is very important because in trying to convince administrators that they should pay for chaplains or hire chaplains, and by the way, I think we are grossly understaffed in hospices, in hospitals, in outpatient clinics for sure, and we need far more uh, certified chaplains. I mean, there's no question about that. So what is it that administrators need to hear? For any of us, really, they need to know that there's a difference of some sort. So there are studies, actually, that there's cost savings from chaplain visits. There are studies, certainly, that the patient experience is improved if there's a chaplain on the team after a, a healthcare chaplain visit. And I think part of that is that people desperately feel... Um, they need to be listened to. One of my favorite quotes from Mother Teresa is how many, there's so many people that are poor throughout the world, but there are even more people who are suffering from loneliness. And that connection that all of us on the healthcare team should make is so key. And chaplains are really trained in that compassionate presence, listening. But it's not just that. They have the training, the theological, the philosophical questions training, to know what questions to ask, to actually intervene. So, Currently, there's a huge push in research to show what is the impact from a chaplain visit on Patient healthcare outcomes, on cost. So, for example, having a chaplain on the team in the hospice is a good thing to do. It actually benefits not just the patient, but chaplains also provide support to the healthcare team, to the rest of us on the team. So, those are the kinds of markers that are being used by administrators, um, et cetera, to justify hiring chaplains. There's another bit, uh, another kind of way of looking at this, and that is a lot of work that I've done to integrate spirituality as an essential part of healthcare in general but specifically palliative care and hospice. And that is to recognize that people are suffering deeply, that our obligation, the definition of palliative care is to attend to all all types of pain and suffering the patient, physical as well as psychosocial and spiritual. So that means, and I know this is a little controversial, but that means thinking about the diagnosis of spiritual distress and and how do we code for that. Why is
1: that controversial?
2: Well, I don't think it's controversial because I'm a physician and I'm used to the diagnosis model. But it I is don't very, Thank you. Okay, but there are some people who feel, how can you take this more religious or spiritual or philosophical and put, you know, put it into a medical model? We mm, like put we work a scale on it. Yeah, we work in a medical model. You know, so so that actually is advantageous to be able to say to my doctor colleagues, you know, people who have spiritual distress, actually their physical pain might be worse and you can give them all the opioids in the world, but they're gonna continue having this distress. So you need to identify that. And then you need to work with the chaplain on the team to treat right. that.
3: I think it's really important for people to understand that there are different sources of pain and that you have to treat the source of the pain or nothing is going to improve so if if you have a really sore foot um, and you ice your hand it's probably not going to help your sore foot (laughs) and i I feel very similar if you're someone is in spiritual distress if someone is in a spiritual crisis giving them more pain medication is not going to touch that pain because it has a different source and so we need to look at the whole person and this is not just For the elderly, this is for people at any stage of their lives. You look at the whole person and you find, what is the source of your pain? Um, Is it physical pain that's causing spiritual distress? And that happens sometimes. Or is it spiritual pain that's causing a physical reaction? And that happens sometimes too. And if you don't, if you only treat pain with medicine, there's a lot of suffering and pain that's never going to be touched because the source wasn't physical. The source was emotional or spiritual to begin with. And I think that is, if there is anything I would want the healthcare profession to know when they're asking, why are chaplains important? It would be that, that if you are in the business of treating someone's pain, then you need to take spiritual pain really seriously because a spiritual crisis, when someone is truly in a spiritual crisis, when they cannot make sense of what is happening to them, when they are 22 years old and have just been given a terminal diagnosis and literally their world has been ripped out from under them and they are in a, an absolute sea of meaninglessness, there is nothing, there is nothing as painful as that. Hmm
2: exactly exactly and i think this is where presence becomes such a a key you know i teach my medical students this and that um you know what what i feel what i do as a, a physician is um is sacred it's a sacred calling and i think what happens between my patients and i in that room is very sacred and it's in those moments of silence it's in those moments of deep presence that i think some space opens up for that person to find i i can't I can't erase their suffering, but I can, through that presence, perhaps create a space where they can begin to start touching that, where they can begin to start their own healing process. And that is, I think, where um, the, the science of medicine meets the art of medicine.
1: And Carrie, when I was at Hebrew Senior Life, one of the things that chaplains talked to me about while I was there was the need to sort of approach uh, the residents in a gentle way because many of them had come through very traumatic experiences much earlier in their lives. One woman, for example, had survived the blockade of Leningrad. Does that square with your own experiences as a hospice
3: chaplain? I gave the example of you know a 22 year old who's just been given a you know a terminal diagnosis, and you can understand, and I think it's very obvious to people why that might cause a spiritual crisis. I think what is possibly harder to understand, um, but equally important to understand, is that sometimes that spiritual crisis happened when you were 22, and you are now 92, and you are still living with that spiritual crisis, right? That sometimes the things that have happened to us 50 years ago still don't make sense at the end of life, because sometimes those scars of the really difficult, hard things we went through, the meaningless, seemingly meaningless things we went through, they don't leave us right? They stay with us and we carry them. And sometimes they're so heavy. Sometimes we carry them well and sometimes we don't. And at the end of life, you know, this Giro Transcendence, I think you mentioned, I think what you start to see is that the work of life, the busyness of life maybe is done. And you now have the time to sit and reflect and to think and to think, my God, what did all of that mean? And that spiritual crisis can reemerge even at the end of life because it still doesn't make sense and that is a place um, where the chaplain can come in and understand that the spiritual crisis isn't just at the moment, that sometimes, sometimes we carry them with us, and at the end of our lives, we want to finally make sense of them.
2: And you know, it's when, Carrie, when you're talking, I just reflect on how much I've learned from my patients, and when I was a medical student, I, I went to a local hospice here at Washington Home, and um, I asked a spiritual history of this woman, and she said, I don't know that I'm really spiritual, and I said, what gives your life meaning? And she goes, I don't even know that either. And so yes. for the next couple of days, we just talked, and then finally at the end, she says, you know, I'm beginning Beginning to kind of come to some understanding, and then she says, and I'm saying this here because she asked me to say it. Anytime I teach medical students, she said, "I wish I had addressed that question when I was a lot younger, so I wasn't dealing with all of that." You know, I feel so privileged sometimes to hear stories like that because it brings me to the awareness that throughout all of our lives, to have those reflective moments, to have those times to touch on it, to have a little break from the busyness is so crucial. And yes, when we're right up against our end of life, I think all of a sudden we have no choice but to ask that.
1: Right, right. And Christine, I want to ask you something that harkens back to that piece that we heard earlier. And it's about the story of the woman who had pretty serious dementia, who had been nonverbal for months and then picked up on a Yiddish song. Can you talk a little bit about the role of religion, ritual, song, with patients who have dementia?
2: So I think um, with people who have dementia, there is this assumption that, you know, they can't think as clearly as we do, or they're forgetting things. And I think, so the first thing I would say, before even answering that, is to approach people with dementia as just people with You know, like anybody else, and how do we best communicate, and it requires for us, and I've learned this through my own parents actually, it requires for us to move away from this notion that one sentence will follow another, and it'll all make sense. Um, And and also I have found from a lot of my patients with dementia that they have tremendous wisdom um, if you give them the opportunity to share that and feel safe in sharing that. So, um, but in terms of, you know, so how do we get there? One of my colleagues, Dr. Cohen, uh, did a lot of of work on creativity and aging. And in his work, he actually had family members working with people with dementia and helping them create their own story. You know, a, a coloring book, uh, actually a book of photos. And he found that as people were c- doing that type of work, creativity, that it actually helped them, it actually improved their mental status scores. So they actually got better. And I, I, so I do think that rituals, music, art, the creative arts, I think that moves, that moves away from a sort of intellectual functioning to more what I would call a soul functioning. And I think that that opens up people's ability to think more clearly. Um, certainly with my own dad, who now at 85 has some cognitive impairment, he and he's an opera singer. So when he sings, you know, his he, you know, like this morning, I'm driving to work, and he loves to sing, you are my sunshine to me. So, you know, when he sings, he becomes clearer. And um, and I think it, it creates a lot of calm. Again, a story from a nursing home. There was a, a woman who had been, at, actually was a pastor in the 50s, an African-American woman who pastored her own church. But as she got you know older and demented, she would have these periods of agitation. And the staff really always wanted to medicate her. And I didn't think that was such a good idea. So I one night they called me and I said, you know, I'm just going to come over and see what's going on. So I went over and I saw her and I called her Mother Jones. That's not, that's not really what I called her, but I'll make that up. Mother Jones, you know, what's going on with you right now? And she'd be yelling and screaming. And I said, I'd love to hear a prayer. And she would sing out a prayer. And gone was the agitation. And in fact, she was very just at, like a trigger. Point, just like a trigger. And so I actually wrote in the notes when she's agitated, ask her to sing a prayer. And that worked. We never had to medicate her.
1: That's tremendous. Yeah. Um, what about you, Carrie? Have you incorporated rituals into your work as a hospice chaplain? How have, how do mm-hmm. you use ritual in your work?
3: Well, I I think ritual for so many people is enormously comforting. Um it's it's gives them the ability to stop and to recenter themselves really in a sort of an inward way. So on the one hand, ritual is very outward facing. But what it does in that outward facing um, activity is it allows people to really become very internal and it tends to be enormously comforting for people. Um, So as a chaplain, we, we talk to clergy in the in the, in the area all the time, whether it's a Catholic priest to come in for the sacrament of the sick, whether it's a rabbi to come in to do prayers, um, that ritual is part of that spiritual toolbox. That ritual is enormously comforting. It's a way when you're feeling scattered, you know, that, that you're being pulled in a million directions. There's nothing quite like ri- ritual to be able to pull yourself back together. So it's very powerful. Um, I thought about what you said about You Are My Sunshine, and I remember when we, I was in a, a nursing home, there was a, a woman who made a very high-pitched keening sound all the time, and she had dementia, and nobody really knew what this high-pitched keening sound was, but it was constant, and I went in one day, and you try all sorts of different things to see if there's a reaction, and I started to sing You Are My Sunshine, and for the first time ever, she stopped the sound. And as soon as I stopped singing, she began this high-pitched keening sound again. So then I tried another song, and immediately she stopped. Um, and I wrote all this in the notes, and I didn't think too much of it. The doctor read those notes, and she thought, huh, well, if she stops the keening sound when someone is singing, that means it's not an involuntary sort of reaction. It means it means something. And she thought, I wonder if she's in physical pain. And at the time, they only sort of had her on like a, you know, kind of a daily dose of Tylenol, And the doctor thought, well, maybe she's in physical pain and she needs more pain medication and she can't tell us. And so she upped her pain medication in some other way. And sure enough, not only did the woman stop keening, she was able to begin to communicate again. (laughs) So I I think um, it's always important when someone has dementia that you try you try to interact, you try to find that connection, and that's that's on the clinician, right? That's on us to be really creative and find a way to connect.
2: Exactly.
3: Um, so Carrie, I want to ask, well, I want to ask this to both of you, but you've been
1: working with the elderly, with the aging, with people who are dying. What does working with that population teach you about how you want to live?
3: I think one of the most important things I've learned is that um, people are becoming who they are every single day of their lives. That development doesn't stop. And that we get to we get to shape that development not everything you know sometimes we're sort of handed a deck of cards and but we get to we get to decide how to play it we get to decide how to become who we are and i am always amazed even at the end of life how much change can happen if the person puts in the time it's not automatic you know you don't automatically become elderly and become wise <laughs> that's not automatic but what you can do is you can choose who to become and how to become how to live your life and I think working with people who are elderly and working with people who are dying hearing their stories that more than anything is what I take away is that you have this very limited life and every day you have choices on how to live and who to be and you should use those choices wisely.
1: Christina, what about you? Do you have any final thought that you want to end on?
2: So you know, also doing global work, I'm really blessed to see different cultures and, and I really, I love the, the concept and many of my patients feel this way that they can, they can, they don't like to be thought of as I'm not healthy, but really I'm a healthy person. I'm a full person that just happens to have whatever illness. And and the illness is not them. They are not cancer. They are not Alzheimer's. They are not Parkinson's. They are not old age. They are not arthritis. And one of my least favorite things to hear is, well, for the members of society that are not contributing, who is that? Everybody is contributing by their very presence. You know, maybe as we age, maybe we don't do as much. Maybe we are more focused on being. But in fact, that is the sort of spiritual state and the transcendent state. And what I love to think about is is I wish our societies would think about intergenerational models. I know when I was a little girl, I used to have this fantasy of having a farm, and older people would be there, abandoned kids and animals. And I still think you know, how amazing it would be in society if we had more opportunities for intergenerational dialogue, where the older people can pass on their spiritual and other wisdom. And that, that's really what is of, of incredible value.
1: When you've been traveling with your work, have you seen other societies where you think they have a better take on that?
2: Absolutely, absolutely, particularly in Africa and other places. But I'll tell you a story of, of one of my dad's aides, Sar, who is uh, from Sierra Leone when one day I walked in um, and was visiting my dad in the evening and he started getting very antsy and I you know pushy and I turned to Sar and I said, "I'm so sorry, he goes sorry. There's nothing to be sorry about." Your dad, you know, he's in his nineties. He deserves all our respect. This is normal. This is normal. We enjoy this. This is normal. It's energy, you know, and I thought, (sighs) wow, you know, and I, and I, and I was just so touched in by him and also so a little embarrassed by myself of immediately going into apologizing for what is normal. I, I see that a lot where people are considered the elders
0: are the highest position. That was Dr. Christina Pulowski. She's the author of Time for Listening and Caring, The Role of Spirituality at the End of Life. And Chaplain Carrie Egan, the author of Only. When we come back, Ruth takes us to California to hear from the late Franciscan Christian Mondur, also known once as the Surfing Padre. That's coming up right after the break. Stay with us.